Hi, and welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that tells it like it is and also like it should be. Today we have Lindsay and Kellen. And our subject today is mass incarceration. It's a big topic, and we have an even bigger guest list. So I think we're going to just get right to it and let our guests introduce themselves. So I'm Shayna. Uh-huh. I am a law student at NYU. I'm in my second year, and I am focused on criminal justice issues. I have been focused on them since college. I actually started my freshman year of college tutoring people in New Jersey prisons. And I had never really had any interaction with the prison system before, hadn't known anyone who was affected by it when I was growing up. And I just realized that there were really significant civil and human rights issues happening in the prison system. I started studying it in college and continued to tutor for all four years. And then I went to work for the organization that's called the PD Green Program, So I expanded it along with some other former tutors to different cities. So I was focused on Maryland. And from there, I then went to went to law school. And I've been working in a number of different areas. I work as a case manager for the student run bail fund at NYU. I have worked at the public defender's office in New Orleans. And I'm also working on parole preparation advocacy, so helping people who are serving indeterminate life sentences in New York um, prepare for their parole hearings. That's awesome. Thank you so much for your work, Mm -hmm. Um, and welcome to Season of the Bitch. (laughs) Thank you. Um, My name is Nellie, and uh, I live in El Paso, Texas. I'm actually a teacher. I I work at a high school with special education students, and I became part of a committee, the Detained Migrant Solidarity Committee, maybe, a, don't know, me. I would say maybe about a year or two years ago, and that uh, I became part of that committee because my husband had been deported, and we were living in Mexico, and he was actually a victim of a shooting. We came to the border to seek help and seek asylum. And what we ended up finding was that he was actually brought in. They said, okay, we'll take you in to hear your case. He was in detention for 17 months in circumstances that I can say were not in any way, you know, adequate for or humane for any of the people that are in there. Instead of like him being treated like a victim, he was treated like a criminal along with many others that are in there. So I I came to know of this committee, and I joined them to speak out on behalf of the immigrants. Right now, the committee is working on an ICE on trial. It's like it's a national thing going on by the, I believe it's the National Detention Watch, if I'm not mistaken. And it's to bring out the inhumane treatment, the lack of their meeting their legal obligations to these immigrants, from medical care to their mistreatment to so many things that go on. And the committee's very committed to seeking help, seeking bond money for those that do get bonded out, which are rare, trying to get phone money for people that have been detained and have no contact with their family and just 
many, many other things. They work on translations. As many of the immigrants that come don't speak English, and the paperwork is in English, so they're working on people that can work on translating the documents so that they are aware of what they're reading. So, yeah, because of that unfortunate circumstance, I came to be a part of the committee and I'm a mom, so my life's pretty hectic because I'm, I'm juggling, you know, full-time job, mom. And then I, I do live in Juarez, Mexico with my husband because after being, he was detained at the immigration camp for like 17 months and then spent another six months actually at the county jail because a guard attacked him and he defended himself and then he was charged with that. So at the end of everything, he was deported. There was no asylum granted or anything, so. So, so um, that. yes. So that's that's the situation. Yeah, thank you for joining us and um, for sh- you know sharing your story, and we'll definitely sort of dive back into the, the all the stuff that you're talking about here too. Yes. Um, all right, we got a we got a couple co- uh, couple folks over on the west coast. If y'all want to introduce yourselves as well. Hi, there's two of us. I'm going by May. I'm going by bipolar. Welcome. Um, Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Before I introduce myself, I want to first acknowledge the land where we're calling from, which is occupied Duwamish territories in the Pacific Northwest in so-called Seattle. And the reason why I think that's important to talk about in this context is just to acknowledge that we're living in a settler colonial state right now, um, and that we can't talk about either anti-capitalism or prison abolition without first addressing the root of that, which is that both come from colonialism and patriarchy, and that the displacement and dispossession of land is continuous. So just want to say that first. Yeah, one um, of the struggles but... of podcasting is that you can't tell when people are nodding along with you. <laughs> I'm nodding. So yeah, please, thank you for bringing that up and continue. Totally. Yeah, so that's the land where we're on. Um, my name is May. I go by any pronouns that you want. And I do, I'm a, I'm a student at university here studying geography. And I guess my connection to the subject of this podcast is just like having loved ones who have been incarcerated and like understanding the the violence of it and how it's a condition. It's like a continuation of slavery. And so just like wanting to abolish prisons for all those reasons. But specifically, the work that we're doing here is with um, a collective called Block the Juvie which is organizing against the con- ongoing construction of a new juvenile detention center in Seattle. And so we can talk about that more later. And then I also do just like direct support for folks who are incarcerated, who I know as prison firefighters or as political prisoners or just people in different parts of the world. And then I also participate in Books to Prisoners, which is a nonprofit that sends books to prisoners based on requests that they can write in. So yeah, I think that's all of the relevant work that I have to bring. And then bipolar can go. Yeah, uh, my like someone named bipolar and just call me bipolar as far as pronouns. Um, and so Block the Juvie, of course, part of that collective. I was a part of this collective called Wish, was also was trying to stop the Juvie when it first arose, as well as uh, Overthrow Media, which is an art collective that is dedicated to radical change, specifically around prison abolition and around uh, police, police abolition as well, because police is just slave catchers, pretty much. As well as I'm a part of FTP, Fight Toxic Prisons, which is an international uh, convergence that is 
um, trying to bring light and uh, bring a, and abolish prisons, but also bring it through the lens of showing how they're super. A lot of the prisons are super fun sites. They're toxic. They're causing damage environmentally, uh, as well as to the communities that are affected by prison. And as well as I'm an ex-convict that has uh, done time, and I come from the space of seeing it from someone who's affected by it versus someone who's like um, sees it from the outside. You know what I mean? And so I have. Uh, a very vested interest, both for my individual self and for my community, that a lot of whom are still incarcerated and will probably continue to be incarcerated for many years if we don't stop uh, prisons. So. Well, I'm very excited to hear from all of you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh. So, yeah, first of all, thank you guys all so much for joining us. And I think w- it sounds like we have a couple of terms that actually might be helpful for us to just define for our audience if they're not super familiar. So the first is probably mass incarceration. And the second, I think, is prison abolition. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was wondering if y'all could tell me sort of how what what mass incarceration is. And, you know, to ask a very simple and easy to answer question, how does it happen and why does it happen? How does it happen in the United States particularly? So mass incarceration is a systematic incarceration of large amounts, millions of people, specifically targeting black and brown communities. For example, the U.S. has one of the largest prison populations. We have the, the biggest prison population. I think it was 25 percent of the world's prisoners within the U.S. And that's why it's, uh, we were doing mass incarceration. And it's very it's rooted in the continuation of slavery. They still they use it not only to keep numbers up so they can keep funds being uh, exploited or extorted from the populace, but also they use for slave labor like Unicor, for example, where people are forced to build to work 12 hour days for less than a dollar an hour, uh, mm. hard menial labor, building things like missiles and tankers for uh, the, the military. And so mass incarceration, anyways, mass incarceration is that large system. It is, it is the prison system as a whole and the intent of, of it. And then, yeah, and just uh, to add one thing to that, I think my poor mentioned about Unicor, just a statistic is that since the formation of Unicor, which is like privatizing prison labor, basically, the prison population in the U.S. has grown, I think, sevenfold. Wow. Um, So that's no mistake, right? Um, so I just wanted to add that about mass incarceration. And then um, does anyone else in the conversation want to define prison abolition? If not, I can take that. But I just wanted to. No, go for go it. Go ahead. And we can, yeah, we can have multiple everybody definitions can jump in. Yeah, but please awesome. <laughs> cool. So I think for me, prison abolition is abolishing, like getting rid of not only the physical walled prisons themselves, like not just the structure that holds people behind cells, but also forms of state-sanctioned violence and correctional control. So it's a very broad thing for me. It's like not only stopping people from being in jail or stopping that from being a thing, but also stopping the ways in which the government surveils and controls people um, within their own homes and in other ways. So Yeah, that's great. So like, and, and these probably seem like very basic questions to you guys, but just before we, I mean, really dive into what, what y'all do and, and that kind of stuff, um, I want to be sure we're laying like a really thorough groundwork. So why does, you know, what, why does prison abolition matter? And again, this is probably an obvious question, but to lay it out, you know. 
I mean, it, it comes from varying points of why it matter, in my opinion. I mean, because it, it falls into, like, the detrimental effect it has on the specific communities, our communities that are being incarcerated. And people shouldn't make profit off of slavery, off of caging people and be able to and continually targeting communities that are already uh, pushed to the margins as far as economically and socially based uh, within this system. And that's just like the start, not to mention the individual and psychological damage it does to anybody who's incarcerated, not to mention the damage it does to their children, to their mothers, to their to their fathers, to, you know what I mean, the list goes on. And then also on top of it, prison itself, increases the likelihood of recidivism and increases the likelihood of people to feel pushed in the corner where they have to commit more crimes. So it's not likely to make the community any safer. In fact, it's going to make it more unsafe because of people being pushed more to the margins, being pushed into more desperate situations, and also being traumatized, which is a horrible mix if we want to save a community, especially while that same community or that same, maybe not community, but this, the nation is ostracizing those people at the same time and shaming them for just existing. When I say other people, I mean myself as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I do want to tag off of something that you've said a couple of times, Bipolar, which is um, you've referred to prison as legalized slavery. And I want to clarify for our listeners who are not aware of this. I'm sure a lot of them are, but that's not hyperbolic. The 13th Amendment, which abolished, quote unquote, abolished slavery, did leave it as a permissible punishment for crime. So slavery in the United States is still legal as punishment for a crime, and it's still very much utilized today. Yeah. So I just wanted to clear that. No, clarify that point. <laughs> Thanks for doing that, Lindsay. And I actually just listening to y'all. Um, it's funny because I'm a bunch of people listening to the podcast maybe know this, but the people on the podcast maybe don't. Um, I study history, um, and I feel like I know. I mean, I, I do 19th century history, so I'm more on like the earlier side of these kinds of things. But I didn't know about Unicor that like you guys brought it up and I literally just Googled it as you were talking, bipolar in May. And I mean, I knew about for-profit prisons and I knew about prison labor and the way that it's exploited, but I didn't know about the federal prison industries, which is another name for Unicor. Does anybody here want to talk about what that is? Or if I, I don't know if anyone knows the history of that, but I just as somebody that like is really interested in history and literally like didn't had no idea about this sort of centralized organization for controlling prisoners labor in the United States. I'm really interested in this. I don't have my notes with me. So it's going to be kind of like rough, but like <laughs> totally understandable. F- We're here for uh, it. FDR was one of the people that instated it. And like, like you said, uh, it was F- what, FPI, a federal prison that you just said. Yeah. Yeah. Federal prison industries originally, and it was, I know it was happening during the time in the push to transition from, because uh, the transition from prison labor to chain gangs, and there was a second transition from chain gangs back to prison labor. And so, like, it was another, it was one of the bigger pushes to get to the point where prison labor was being utilized to uh, be able to gain resources economically. And it actually started to seriously boom in really quickly after they uh, started initiating it. And I wish I had my nose with me because I could be more detailed than this, but this is off the top of my head right now. Yeah, no, that's great. Thank I you. also yeah. want to point out that, you know, we, we're talking a little bit about 
private prisons being terrible, and they are terrible, obviously, they incentivize all the wrong things. But there's only about like, I think it's like 8% of the people held in prison in the US are held in private prisons. Mm, And I think mm -hmm. a much more a much more pervasive, insidious thing that's happening is that private prisons contract a lot of their services out to private companies that then do really terrible things to to the people that they're purportedly supposed to be working with. You, know, you have private healthcare companies that you know completely ignore pregnant women, and who there was there was one prison where a private healthcare company had sewed up a or had sterilized a woman's cesarean section wound with sugar, um, oh. just just like packets of sugar from the cafeteria. Oh my god! Um, and and if you look at uh, the phone companies, they you know they're a monopoly. People can't choose what to use to call their loved ones. So you know it's it's a drain on poor communities where people who are incarcerated come from. So I think I think it's important to have that broader perspective of all prisons are doing this are are bad and incentivize you know more people getting locked up. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would even go to say that like. All prisons benefit the private sector, like public mm-hmm. prisons. Public prison labor still goes to make stuff for private uh, or for corporations that are public or private corporations that, you know, where private citizens are making money off of it. Because the private prison just means a private individual making money off the prison versus like public prisons. They still use private corporations, still make money off and they still use uh, uh, prison labor. Um, which is then contracted to them through the, like the public, uh, the public realm, whether it's the federal prison or the state prison or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Shana, you mentioned that you worked at, or I guess interned at a public defender's office. Yeah. Um, and I'm just wondering a little bit about that experience. Um, I guess what you saw of the prison system through that. And also if you can, you know, if you have any information on this, like how difficult it is to actually keep people out of the prison system once they've entered the criminal justice system at all? Yeah, so it's really hard. So <laughs> my first experience was, so I was working in New Orleans with the Orleans Public Defender Office, and my first experience, just to sort of get my feet wet, was to go to arraignments. So that's mm-hmm. the first thing that happens when when someone's arrested, um, you know, it might be early in the morning, so it's the same day. Usually it'll be they're held overnight in jail and then they have a right to see a judge. And so I I went to arraignments and they have the judge come in and then they bring in the people who've been arrested and they all file in in orange suits and they're all shackled in a way that their hands are shackled together, and then there's a chain down to their legs, which are also shackled together. And you hear them all shuffling in. The vast majority of them are black men. And it was eerie, and it felt like, you know, I knew that in that city there had been slave auctions. So to hear that and to, to hear the sound of the chain, chains clanging as they walked in and to see them walking in was was horrifying. And I, I remember looking around the room and just thinking, does anyone else think this is like totally messed up? And everyone had become very used to it. And I I commented to the attorney that I was shadowing that day, like, this really feels like a slave auction. And she was like, yeah, 
I mean, it's terrible and this is what we're fighting against, but you, you definitely get used to it. You get used to seeing that and hearing that. And I think it does something really bad to a person when they sort of get used to that. And especially when I think the, the public defenders, some of them, I think, you know, you're, you're making small differences where you can. But I think for a lot of them, it's very frustrating, given that all of the power, all of the power is given to prosecutors mm-hmm. to determine whether to charge something, to determine, you know, what they're going to be charging and whatever plea deal they're going to be offering. All of the power is is with them. So it can be very frustrating and it can sort of feel like you're just, as a public defender, you're sort of just a tour guide for somebody sort of like shepherding them through this system that is going to destroy their lives and their families' lives and their communities. And I I think a lot of of people, and I don't know if I long-term would be able to do some, like be able to be a public defender for that reason. You know, I had, and especially, so because we were in Louisiana, Louisiana has even more draconian laws than the rest of the country does. And I don't mean this to say that the rest of the country is fine because it's not, but that's just how bad Louisiana is, you know, of what the statistics are for America, the highest rate of incarceration is in Louisiana. And it's not because people are going to trial and losing People don't go to trial because of what the mandatory minimums would be if they were to go to trial. In federal cases, 97% of cases plead. They don't go to trial. In state cases, it's about 94%. So, you know, I, there was a man that I had to visit in jail who had, who had punched somebody. And the punch, they had fallen, hit their head, they had died. And if convicted for that kind of a thing, that's second degree murder, you can go to prison for the rest of your life. The mandatory minimum would be life without the possibility of parole in Louisiana. Oh. And he was saying, like, look, I I understand I like I want to be held accountable in some way. I, you know, out of respect for his family, I'm willing to do prison time. But he was being offered, I think it was 30 years that he was offered. He was going to be in his 60s when he got out. And he just said, you know, I can't imagine. He's like, my daughter will be an adult when I get out. And I just, and I had to be there with him. You know, it wasn't, it was, I was there with the public defender saying, you know, like, like you committed this and we're not going to be able to like all of the evidence as you did it. There's no way that we're going to win this at trial. And he just kept saying like, why are you telling me we're not going to win? Like, give me something else. You're supposed to be my lawyer. You're supposed to be fighting for me. But the law- the public defender's hands are tied because mm-hmm. of what the the prosecutors won't, they have so much leverage because of what it would be if we went to trial. That's, That's devastating. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it seems like, I mean, it's so emotional, even from the outside. And then just the thought of actually like going through that, that's someone's reality. Right. Right. Yeah. I can't imagine that. I would get, when I was down there, I would get nightmares that I went to visit a client and the client was like one of my friends from, from the office, just like one of the other interns there was like someone who was facing a murder charge or something. And I, I would wake up crying and then I would fe- and then I would feel awful that I wasn't crying every day everyone that I met that was facing that you know like why did it have to be someone that I that I had known personally outside for me to get that emotional about it it really is this horrendous violation that that this is happening 
to so many people every day. Yeah, I actually this this I think brings us to another sort of related point, um, which is about bail and the way that bail can trap people in the system so easily and with very little recourse. And we had hoped to get somebody who works on a bail project at the Southern Coalition for Social Justice. And, but I know that some of our other guests are also sort of involved with bail, bail projects. So I was wondering if any of y'all could talk about the way that cash bail programs play into mass incarceration and the problems that they create, especially for people of color, for poor people living in the United States. So with cash bail, it really just serves like as a barrier towards specifically impoverished people being able to get released and get a fair trial. Because if anybody knows about like fair trials, a joke anyways, let me clarify. I shouldn't even say fair <laughs> trial, but like, uh, like a drop of a fair trial, you know what I mean? Like a percentage of what would be considered a fair trial. If you wouldn't know that percentage, you got to be out and poor people don't have the access to the resources to be able to do that, especially on a heavier case. Because, like, misdemeanors can start with, like, 2500 easy. You know, 2500 in pocket. And then it funds, like, the bail bondsman service, which they um, get people to to not only give 10% to them. And I mean strictly to them. That money does not come back. You do not get that money back. It's lost. But you also have to put up collateral, like your house or whatever, which if someone something happens or someone misses their court day, then they can near house or your cars in jeopardy that they can probably take too. And they might still get the money, their money back, but they'll take, they'll take whatever else as uh, for you missing that court date so they can profit off of. And then it makes it then where wealthy people can just walk around the courtroom. You know what I mean? They're like, Oh, what well, the pay bail? Cool. I'll just drop this here. Whoever has someone that has a good credit rating. Cause I can have a credit card and a credit card. A lot of times, at least in Washington, uh, a lot of people have credit cards that they can swipe if they have a little more, uh, if they're more economically privileged, even if they have like a bunch of debt, you know what I mean, and don't really have that at hand. They can sign a credit card versus people who don't have that credit, who live in poverty, that they don't have a credit card that they can slide for ten thousand dollars. You know what yeah. I mean? Just to clarify, also the credit card is also another thing that can be used in the collateral if you're doing a bail bond. So it can be if you don't have property or like a car or something pretty valuable like that or like a good credit score or a credit card there's like no way to get that 10 percent, pretty much Um, and you would have to pay a full bail so that's like a really exclusionary tactic i don't know the percentage and maybe someone else does but a lot of people who are incarcerated right now um, are just they just can't pay the bail is the reason so for example like if if i got a dui um and like the bail was or like something like that, and I could like I could get out of it pretty easily because I could like get a lawyer and like get my bail taken care of and stuff. Like even if something went wrong in the arrest, like the people who don't have that level of economic privilege, they're just like stuck with whatever happens, um, and they're just at the mercy of the state. So this is why like a class analysis is really important when we're talking about mass incarceration. And that's hella real. I mean, just for like people who, for things people can do, if people have those resources, people can step up. Because I remember times when I was first, like when I wasn't politically active and I'm just some young kid trying to like pay for a roof over my head. So I was hustling, right? Man, something as little as like a thousand dollars kept me in jail. You know what I mean? Versus like when I was an activist and I knew people, people would, I was out on ten thousand dollar bail you know what i mean and so that makes a humongous difference of people for people who have want to be in solidarity and have that class privilege to be able to intervene in those spaces but also have to build relationships to do that but you know 
Yeah, absolutely. I actually, also, oh, I was just going to say, I just, I just Googled it the, to get that, that stat um, that May, you were referencing. And um, according to the Vera Institute of Justice, 62% of people in jail in the United States right now are not actually serving time for a crime that they've committed, but are waiting to be tried. And most of those people are in jail waiting to be tried for nonviolent cases. So, oh my God. Anyway, just to put everything in perspective. Yeah, and just from the New York perspective, so we have Rikers Island, this notorious jail that actually is an island. I realized some people didn't realize that it was an island, but it's it's people are actually physically taken away and put on this island. About 85% of people held on Rikers are there pre-trial. And what that means, like the fact that they're not out waiting for their trial, also means that they can't be building a legal case with their attorney. It takes, I've, I've gone to um, talk to people, to interview people at Rikers. It takes a full day to talk to one person at Rikers. Um, so when you think about this overburdened public defender system, and these are the people that are defending people who can't, can't come up with $500 for, for their bail, you know, people are going to be taking pleas because they're not out saying like, look, here's someone you can talk to who can say where I was that day. Here's someone else, you know. And people really start to lose hope when they're on this island that uses a lot of solitary confinement. So people will be told, you know, you can get out now with time served if you just plead. And and that means getting a permanent record and having all of the effects of that permanent record. But so many people plead just to get off of the island because they couldn't afford their bail. And one other thing about these private bail bonds agencies, this is something that's illegal in almost every other country. I think the only other country actually that allows private bail bondsmen is uh, the Philippines. Oh my gosh. I had, I had um, no idea. That's that's insane. Yeah. Wow. And that's something that, and they're they're like really uh, playing a big role in being a barrier to to bail reform in in other areas. Like New Jersey passed this very not perfect, but they they don't have cash bail anymore. So they're now being sued by private bail agencies in New Jersey for charitable bail organizations. So. Bail organizations, that means that they are a charity when someone gets arrested and they have, you know, they meet some certain requirements, they get charitable bail posted for them so that they can get out while they're waiting. And it used to be, I believe, that you were able to post bail for however much you wanted to. And then the bail agencies got together and lobbied and made it so that you couldn't post bail beyond, I think it's $2,000. So, so now the it incentivizes people to have to use bail bail bondsmen. So that's wild. Shana, do you have any just as like sort of an offhand curiosity question? What do you have any idea what legal grounds there is to sue a state for getting rid of cash bail? I don't know. I mean, good luck. I don't <sighs> think they can. <laughs> well, that's, that's good, at least. Oh, these man. are the yeah. These are the actions of a. I think a group of people who know that they're not going to be in business for much longer. So they're making is putting up as big of a fight as they can, but you know, fingers crossed. I do also want to add that another reason it's really important that people be able to get out of jail while they're awaiting their trial is because, well, for one, like optics with the jury, 
a jury is much more likely to convict someone who comes in in handcuffs, um, who comes in like not dressed for court than they are to convict someone who like, as bipolar said, can just walk right out. I did go sit on, sit in on a trial over the summer and the defendant was just, I mean, he was dressed in a black t-shirt and black pants and he wasn't like his wrists and ankles weren't shackled, but like he was dressed very much down and he was kind of like bulky around the middle and it turned out that they had like strapped him up with like a shock vest so that the jury couldn't see him like wearing anything that could be that could indicate that he was in prison but he still didn't I mean he was escorted in and out by the cops so it it did not look like he was there I mean it looked like he was a prisoner even you know with their best efforts um also in prison it's kind of difficult to have privileged communications with your attorney if the attorney is not there physically because their phone calls and their letters are monitored. So the only way that the attorneys can communicate with their clients a lot of the time is in person. Um, and of course, as Shana said, that's not always possible. I just sort of switch directions a little bit here. Um, although it's certainly related. I was wondering, Nellie, if you might be able to talk a little bit about ICE and immigration enforcement and, and the correction, connection, I guess, between those arms of the government and the rest of the prison industrial complex. I think that the way that things are going with ICE and as far as immigrants that are in the country and them just deciding to pick them all up and ship them off, right, as many as possible, regardless of their contribution or anything that they, their time spent in the U.S. I think it's, and what we have found in speaking to immigrants that are detained is that they are treated very, very much like prisoners. And in fact, some immigrants that have, you know, been in jail or been in prison, they, they find that the immigration camp is worse than a prison in the way that they're treated. They they get put in the in solitary confinement as well. I know speaking on, you know, my experience with my husband, um, being that he came from a traumatic experience uh, seeking help, he was under uh, medication for PTSD. And after the altercation with the guard where he was attacked, he was put in solitary confinement, I would say, for almost 30 days. And part of that time, he wasn't given his medication. He wasn't allowed to go to the library to get reading material. He was just kept in four walls. He asked, you know, for things like hygiene things, you know, for just to trim his nails and things. And those things were, of course, it took them a long time. Finally, luckily, because we did have attorneys asking to help, uh, we were able to get the medication administered to him again. I was afraid that... I'd get a phone call that he had committed suicide in there because of the treatment. I mean, generally in the most ideal circumstances, you think of somebody that, you know, suffers a traumatic experience in order for them to heal, they need to be somewhere that they feel safe and comfortable and they're surrounded, you know, in, in a positive environment. But in, you know, in this case, thinking that he would somehow be treated well or, being that he was a victim of a crime, no, he was treated really badly. And, and this goes um, for a lot of the, the immigrants that are in there. They're, a lot of them are seeking asylum, are running from their countries. They come from all over the world, you know, from places with ISIS and 
and places where there's just just the threat, you know, whether it's rival clans or, or whatever threat that they have from their own government, they come here seeking help and they get treated horribly. So it's, it's they're criminalizing victims who come already carrying, you know, they're suffering, you know, or, or maybe they're for some of them, their families were murdered in front of them. And maybe I've read some cases where they were lit on fire even and and they come here seeking help. And and honestly, their spirit gets broken so bad that they actually instead some just want to get deported back because they don't want to be in the situation, you know, being held at this immigration camp or which is more like incarceration for what? And even, you know, even in, in my my perspective, even if they did commit a crime, the way that the system works here is just very, very backwards. I, I think it's just damaging to the community. It's damaging to families from the immigration aspect, from separation of families where children and mothers are torn apart, you know, from fathers and they're placed at different immigration camps to, you know, um, the fact that um, I, I caught part of the story of the gentleman who was incarcerated and then he, um, but I missed part of it also. Then uh, his daughter was going to be grown. And, and I just think the way things are handled is just very damaging to the community, to civilization. There's there's just no sense of rehabilitating people in this country. And, and I mean, that just goes on to the increase in violence that's going on. And instead of treating people that need help in a way that can help build them up, no, it just further destroys them and it further cuts them down. And unfortunately, with that, it's it's cutting down the whole the whole system of family of a family being unified and a family, you know, just the sense of of unity. It, it just tears apart people. And from the immigration aspect, a lot of these people come seeking help and they're treated horribly. They're treated like criminals. And and even then, you know, some for DWIs, they're like treated like they're horrible, horrible people where, whereas in my perspective and the way I see things, I think very much so that, like I said, it, it's just a, it's a disservice to everybody. You know, they might think that they're doing something because this person is, even if the person is a criminal, but what can we do to try to get this community in this country going in the right direction where we have people that have been in prison come out. They don't know how to survive in the, in the world. They don't, they don't know. There's not nothing helping them get reestablished, which this could all be avoided if it was just a different type of system. They're locked up for so long and it's like, okay, here you go out into the free world. Well, they don't know any, anything else. So what they're going to want to do is just go back in prison because that's the only way they know how to survive because mm -hmm. nobody showed them anything else. So I just think it's unfortunate that there are people that like immigrants that are victims that are being thrown into this. And even for those that, that have committed crimes that are, you know, they're being further damaged because no matter what, there's a reason and a story behind everything and everybody. So I think it's a growing problem here. I know that, you know, I feel very fortunate to have found the committee, the Detained Migrant Solidarity mm -hmm. Committee mm -hmm. that wants to help immigrants. It does everything that doesn't doesn't have that mindset like, oh, well, they, they committed a crime, so they deserve to be gone because the bottom line is that they're tearing apart families. You know, there are enough children without stable families, and they're, this is just making it worse. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that answered your question or if there's something more I can share, any other detail you wanted to know 
about the committee or the... Yeah, well, I mean, what can you tell us a little bit about what, what the committee does? Yes, um, they help with documentation for individuals, especially those that don't speak English. Visitations are set up because a lot of these immigrants have nobody visiting them and nobody, you know, knows about what they're going through while they're being held in the camp. The committee reaches out to these individuals and goes and visits them and gets their story. There is a phone hotline where they can call within the committee to report abuses. They assist them in getting legal help and uh, they do remote document document translation. Also, there's there's a training for a uh, small paralegal team to help the detain- detainees represent themselves pro se. So the small paralegal team is working with them. And uh, they started this uh, fund. It's the Fronterizo Fianza Fund that was created recently and has helped bail uh, so far three people out. One was a gentleman who was on a hunger strike. He was detained for over a year in California, and his bond was $3,000. Another one was uh, a gentleman in Albuquerque who was arrested by ICE at a regular probation appointment. And so he was checking into his regular probation appointment, and he was arrested by ICE. Mm. Another one is uh, a lady named... uh, Blanca, she's an asylum seeker from El Salvador. She was separated from her son in October. She was released on March 8th, and uh, her bond was $7,500. So, yeah, so uh, the committee is working really hard to raise funds to be able to bond these people out because without this, they're, they send the bo- they set the bond so high. They know that realistically who's going to have this money, especially them being – you know, immigrants from other parts of, of the world are, you know, are working probably, I, I don't know if they're working minimum wage jobs or what they're working, but for those that were arrested here, but they know that the bond is going to be so high. How are they going to come up with this money? So the committee is also uh, an abolitionist group and where we work against, you know, the myriad ways of the, that the community is criminalized detained, incarcerated, militarized, and divided. So um, we, right now, like I said, we're working on the ICE on trial to be able to emphasize on the dehumanizing and exploitative ways that ICE is is treating the the immigrants that they're detaining. That's, Mm -hmm. That's amazing work, and it's, I'm so glad that there are people doing it. I'm actually... I'm reminded of some of the stuff that that I work on as a historian, and one of the sort of the the institutions that I study quite a bit, and this reminds me of what Bipolar was saying earlier, thinking about the the connections between the modern carceral state and this slave system that existed in the United States, one of the, the sort of types of groups that sprung up throughout the country, and especially sort of in the, the border states, were anti-slavery societies. And so much of what they did is, it's striking to me how similar it is to what Nellie's describing right now, in that they lived in places where they advocated for an end to slavery. And of course, this is like white dudes in the 19th century. So I definitely don't want to paint them as being like soup, you know, like heroes or anything. But the groups that they started, a lot of what they did was about, you know, trying to advocate for an end of slavery, but, you know, knowing that in some places like Maryland or whatever, that was unlikely to happen, they 
basically turned their attention to trying to collect funds to individually free people or taking on the court cases of people who claimed that they were illegally held as slaves or that, you know, they were kidnapped or that, you know, they had been granted freedom in somebody's will and then the son, you know, tried to hold them as slaves or, or whatever it may be, sort of all the myriad ways that a person's freedom could be stripped from them, even outside of the legal bounds that slavery afforded. And it just strikes me as another parallel, the ways that citizens are sort of forced to support one another when the state is so clearly failing at doing that, or not not even failing, but like is, is intentionally set up to abuse the humanity of, of the people living within the country. Anyway, that's a little bit of a tangent, but it, it's it's striking. I actually, I was interested in hearing a little bit from May and Bipolar. I know you guys recently ran a seminar on, uh, and, and Bipolar, you talked about this a little bit when you're introducing yourself, on environmental justice and mass incarceration. And I was wondering if y'all could talk just a little bit more about that and those connections. Yeah. Go, go, go. <laughs> uh, first of all, thank you, Nelly, for sharing all of that. That was really eye-opening to me, and I'm really grateful for the work that y'all are doing. That's amazing. So I guess, like, going off of that to kind of bridge the conversation into why should environmentalists care about this, there's an example of, like, an immigration detention center in Tacoma, which is in occupied Puyallup territories, like, about an hour south of Seattle, and there's, uh, like, a grassroots and documented led movement that's doing similar work um and there's been a lot of like rolling hunger strikes going on i think at least for the last three years led by undocumented detainees and so i just wanted to highlight like the resistance that's going on and then in terms of how that relates to environmental justice there's first of all the fact that you have to understand the labor of human bodies as part of the environment because human bodies are part of the environment right like we're not separate from our habitats ever whether those are urban or not. And so that's the first reason. So like these um, immigrant detainees and all prisoners in the U.S. are having their labor stolen from their bodies. um, And that in and of itself is an environmental issue. But then also going deeper than that, we can look at all sorts of ways in which prisons um, like the Northwest Detention Center and a ton of other ones in the area like contribute massively to wastewater contamination and pollution um, and like improper disposal of uh, wastewater, land use change, and all of the different ways that prisons are toxic, um, as we can talk about a little bit more later. But then also specifically in Tacoma, they are building a liquefied natural gas plant. They're currently building it. Like every day they're adding layers and it's really, really heartbreaking. But that's two less than two miles away from the Northwest Detention Center, which is pretty much the only major concentration of people in that area because it's by the port. And so not only is that a heavily contaminated industrial site, but also there's this fossil fuel project that's going to further contaminate those areas on a fault line also nonetheless. Um, So that's one local example of how environmental issues and the fossil fuel industry and climate contribute to the trauma of incarceration. One of the other points we focused on was how, like, for example, the federal prisons are all Superfund sites. Does everyone know what a Superfund site is? Why don't you explain it? A Superfund site is a site that has been acknowledged as a contaminated site where pollution has caused serious damage and people it's not safe for people to live at. Yeah. A um, place becomes a Superfund site once the government, the federal government determines that it's like more dangerous to try to remediate it or like have people in that area and that the, the best thing that they can do is just have nothing there. But mm-hmm. clearly that doesn't happen. 
Yeah. And then, uh, and so every federal prison is built on, is a Superfund site. And not only are they built on it where, like, the land is toxic, like, when Victorville USP, which when I was at, was, uh, there was, there's, like, people were leaving with really high copper levels. It used to be where they got rid of ammunition, um, and the whole soil was toxified. But also the, the things that we are forced to create, Mm-hmm. And where our labor is utilized for is the same thing as causing a mass environmental damage across the planet. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, especially the war machines that uh, people in prisons are forced to build for the U.S. military uh, for slave labor, right? Like that, the military itself produces what, like, I want to say it's like 70% of uh, of the pollution across the globe. You know what I mean? From the from the weapons of war. I mean, don't quote me on that. I might be a little <laughs> off. Um, but I think it's, it, I, I just racism being a thing uh but like the mass amount of of toxins used to be able to weld it together also the the, the what is built for i feel like i'm stuttering but what it builds for uh is based is causing havoc across the globe like envi- environmentally um as well as in many other ways warfare just this destroys everything altogether <laughs> Fuck yeah, so bottom line, the military-industrial complex and the prison-industrial complex are, like, deeply tied with each other, and both of those mm-hmm. destroy people and the places that they live. Um, and then just another contextualizing thing, so Victorville, which is the prison that BP talked about that they were in, uh, was a former military site, right? It was an ammunition disposal yeah. site. Yeah, ammunition disposal for the military. And so a lot of the Superfund sites are also where they would do test bombings. And so there's like nothing else that can go on that piece of land because clearly it's too dangerous. So instead they'll site a prison there. And not to mention that inside the prison, the food, mm-hmm. uh, which is also an environmental issue, is uh, marked not for human consumption. If you get back into the kitchen, you see on the uh, on the big, because they come in big, like little, the big containers are almost like uh, barrels, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And yeah, so like, it's just multiple levels on how like prisons specifically connect, interconnect. And a lot of what, uh, while I would focus, focus, ah, hold on, give me a second, sorry. A lot of what we focused on was also the history of prisons and how not only was it connected environmentally, um, but how it went from the process, of course, of slavery all the way up to the prison we got now and how big industry and infrastructure was built from that, which, of course, was big and free infrastructure destroyed land, polluted land, continues to pollute land, um, continues to pollute water. I'm getting mm-hmm. kind of tired, so pardon me for not being as articulate as I want to be. <laughs> oh, no, no, no you're worries. doing great. Could I, I know we've been talking for a long time about this topic, but could I add a couple more things oh, about no, the please, connections with environmental justice? Oh, certainly. Okay, so one thing that we haven't on yet is the issue of natural disasters and what happens in the case of a natural disaster, which are obviously mm-hmm. uh, exacerbated and like increased in frequency with climate change or climate chaos. And so the protocol in pretty much all the prisons in the U.S. is to evacuate the guards and then the prisoners are left. Um, and like we've seen this happen in our community specifically, like there was a fire in the juvie last year in the summer. And then like one of like one of the youth who was detained uh, communicated with outside folks and like told them that they happened that this happened. And then outside organizers like brought this to the city and we're like hey there was a fire what the heck like can you please explain and the, the city council wasn't aware of it it was a small fire and no one was hurt but it's just an example and then there's also like so many other examples of like <laughs> sorry that yeah. was my daughter <laughs> no that's great that's she's the youngest uh, guest right on season now. of the bitch so far 
Yes, hell yes. Yes, right. But basically picking back up. Yeah. We also have to think about like floods. So for example, when Hurricane Katrina hit in the Orleans Parish prison, there were 8,000 inmates that were just left there uh, to like weather the storm, basically. Can I, um, can I add one more thing about it? Not only did they just leave us there, and I mean, I think this is like most people probably already know this, but this is really big. They take the time to lock us in their cells and then evacuate, which, you know, if you've been in a cell, if, say, there's a flood, you're just fucked. You know what I mean? There's nothing you can really do because it's an uh, 8 by 12 room that will fill up pretty quickly and you have no way out of um, because there's no way you can get that door open if it's locked, you know. So. Just so. expanding on the Hurricane Katrina thing, they so not only did they first leave people in their cells and shoot at people when they tried to escape, they then after it became clear that the waters were rising very quickly, they evacuated people, but then they brought them to different jails all across the state and didn't keep records of who they had brought there. So people were just locked up in in parish jails all over Louisiana, and nobody knew they were there. It was more of a horror show than it normally is. And six, eight months later, attorneys came down to Louisiana and started going through and, and keeping records. Like, talking to people in other jails and saying, were you brought here because of Katrina? Were you from New Orleans? And they, they put together, they pieced together the records and managed to throw out all of their charges. But people were held pre-trial for, and people had been picked up for like being drunk and disorderly the night before Katrina hit and served eight months in jail. Oh um, and it was, it was called doing Katrina time. Mm. Yeah, I, this also makes me think about the recent wildfires in California. And there was so much media attention to how awful and devastating they were last year as they were happening. And less media attention to the fact that they were so overwhelming that essentially, even with the help of, you know, the entire West Coast fire department facilities, there was still not enough people working to, to put them out. And so the people who ended up doing much of the most dangerous work were inmates who were essentially conscripted into fire duty, despite, you know, having zero training and going into these incredibly dangerous, you know, massive wildfires, some of them, you know, being in helicopters and, and having to work from there, you know, despite, I mean, I've never been on a helicopter, like, cannot imagine how terrifying that would have been. But in addition to what all of y'all are describing about the risks that, people are, are um, expected to bear simply by being in prison if, if a natural disaster occurs. We also have this other aspect of the kind of literal slavery that people are, are conscripted into in prison and sort of those being the people on the front lines fighting natural disasters for everyone else and that that labor is sort of just made invisible as well. And note that that labor doesn't even translate into people being able to have living jobs after they get out of prison. People who work as firefighters, like the men and women that were fighting those wildfires, when they get out of prison, they're not allowed to work as public employee as firefighters with criminal records. So just note that they're allowed to do it when it's free. I actually have a friend who's uh, serving fire duty out in California right now. And it was like, I he kind of considered it like a blessing when he got on fire duty 
because it's just like apparently so much better than just being in prison. That's so fucked up. Yeah, like that's horrifying. Like being forced to fight fires is better than being in jail. Yeah, it's not a good situation. I may add um, one point I forgot to mention was that, well, after my husband was attacked by that guard and he ended up being charged with assault for defending himself, he went to jail and he then was in jail for six months and conditions in jail were better than at the immigration camp. Mm. He was fed better. The beds were better. The place, you know, the, the temperature was better. It wasn't like super cold or super hot in summer and it was so for yeah I didn't hear him complain as much or just tell me as many things that were going on you know as a matter of fact at all as as they were at the immigration camp and he would get very angry at the way they would treat others um he knows of uh of a gentleman that was beat up put up in put in solitary confinement he and I was also uh we're speaking with an attorney who's also part of the committee, and uh, it was his client. He attempted to commit suicide, and because of all this, without notifying the attorney, without doing anything, uh, they just ended up deporting him without mm-hmm. his case being finished. So the conditions at the immigration camp are, are really bad. Many, many immigrants have stated they feel that they're being treated worse than animals. Oh, that's heartbreaking. So it's just, uh, it really is. It really is. It's just, it's disturbing. Thank you so much for listening to Season of the Bitch today. As always, remember to rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, uh, donate to our Patreon, buy some of our merch. It all looks really great. We have some relatively new designs up. Yeah, check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Um, We're at Season of the Bee. You can also email us, music or thoughts or compliments ideas for episodes uh we're at season of the bee at gmail.com and stay tuned because next week we have part two of our mass incarceration episode we're going to hear more from the people that we've been talking to today season of the bitch